together. Uh, guys, grab your Bibles this morning. Um, I've done some, some painful editing on this sermon uh, a few times because it was just so long, but it's so good. Uh, I'm excited to preach it. And, um, you know, we don't get into some things that I think we have curiosities about sometimes. And uh, we'd like to know more, but it really doesn't necessarily fall always in the purview of the text. And so this morning, um, I think, you know, as we've been talking the last few weeks about um, you know, persecution and just opposition to the church. And I've reminded you that there's a conflict and it's not, it's not the conflict that you have with a different political ideology. It's not a, a conflict between races or countries or any of that, right? It's the unseen conflict. It's the, the opposition of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the darkness, right? The kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. And so when we sort of survey the landscape of what the church or what Christians face today, we sometimes falsely conclude that we're not in a conflict, either because we, it's absent like physical persecution or we don't feel like we're, getting, we're being opposed specifically for the purposes of God. Now, you might get opposed on some other grounds, like you might run into somebody with a different political ideology. So I'd warn you not to conflate the two, the kingdom of God and your particular political bend, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But don't conclude that you're not in a conflict, right? You, you are definitely in a conflict, so you've not escaped being on a side, by one side or the other. And so we, we've been examining how that has affected the church and how uh, last week it caused the church to be dispersed out of Jerusalem because persecution got heated. It got real, and there were people being thrown in prison and so on and so forth after Stephen was martyred. And so um, here's a, uh, a quote, if you will, uh, well, well, well summing up sort of our perspective on how just Western 2022, almost 23, right? Americans view the world today and, and sort of the difficulty that it presents. So C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there's two equal and opposite heirs into which our race, that would be the race of Adam, human beings can fall in our thinking about devils. So he's saying devils there, but he means demons or darkness, right? And so one heir, one, one place to fall is to disbelieve in their existence, right? To just Feel like it's not out there at all. I don't. I don't. It never crosses your mind, and so um, that's one. That's one place you can fall. The other is to believe in their existence, but to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So you know there's a darkness out there, and there's a demon behind everything that happens. You know you spilled a little bit of milk on the table, and the devil's just after you today, or something like that, right? And so you're casting out demons left and right. right? So that would be overly obsessed with this versus. Uh, not having an awareness of it at all. And so both of them uh, are our heirs into which we can fall. And so uh, today I want to help us have the, the groundwork, the framework. I can't teach everything there is to know about uh, demons, and nor is that my, my purpose today. But just to lay a foundation of what, it, what, is, the, um, what is the groundwork, what are, what, are the, what are the opposing sides actually warring over, and um, how does this play out then in terms of our job, our mission as emissaries of the kingdom to go and spread uh, the kingdom of God. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, conquering and the idea is kingdom come. So let me pray for us and then we will get to the text this morning in chapter 8. God, you're good and uh, I just pray that you would um, come this morning by your spirit, that you would calm me and uh, that I would just articulate clearly your word, your truth, um, that it would speak to our hearts, that it would fill us with the knowledge of you, and um, not just for our brains, but also for our being, God, that you would help us to walk as lights in 
this world, that we would be faithful soldiers in this, this battle that we find ourselves in in the conflict. So God, I pray that you would encourage us today, that you would speak to us and equip us with what we need to receive your truth this morning. God, we need eyes to see what's beautiful and right, ears that are open and hearing your voice, and hearts that are flesh to receive by your spirit. We love you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be uh, chapter 8, and uh, starting in verse 4, just to kind of remind and pick up where we're at, and then uh, we'll go through verse 8 this morning. Okay, here we go. So it says, now those who were scattered, that's everybody that was expressed out of Jerusalem except for the apostles, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down. This is, um, this is Philip, one of the Hellenistic uh, Jews who was appointed over uh, the distribution of the food. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. It says, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And then verse 8 tells us that there was much joy in that city. So here is the deal. Our, our, um, our job as the church is not really up for grabs. It's not debatable. We have a task, a mission, and uh, you've been co-opted into that. And so um, it's essentially this, the, the, the co-mission of the church. Right? It's co because we've been co-opted by Christ and empowered through him to do the specific thing. The commission is this, go and tell, not seek and destroy. We, we think of a battle in terms of going and conquering an enemy. And how do we conquer them? Well, we bring weapons and we, we beat them down until they're dead, right? And so that's what we do when we think about a battle and a conflict normally. But that's not the way that the kingdom is advanced in terms of the kingdom of heaven. So it's not seek and destroy. It's search and rescue, not search and destroy. Christ's kingdom is not advanced through a violent struggle, but through a liberation declaration, right? We're, we're, we're going and we're declaring peace to people. So the word here uh, that you see where it says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria and it says he proclaimed to them or he preached to them the word of Christ. Uh, that's a, the, the, the meaning of that word directly is like somebody that would be like old school, the town crier. You remember somebody going like the public square, hear ye, hear ye, right? That kind of idea. That's, it's a public declaration of an announcement of something. And this would have been a common occurrence in the day. And so the, the town crier is there to herald the news, but specific news in this case is the news of a kingdom or a king that's either coming, or a battle that's been uh, won or lost, or the terms and conditions of which a king is going to come and either impose his rule, or which that rule has been overthrown. And uh, we get some of this in uh, way back in Exodus, where the, the preamble to um, the, the Israelites agreeing to uh, abide and be God's people is this declaration of what it means to belong to God. And so um, this is what's happening here. But Philip goes down, he proclaims this word to them about uh, a king who's coming and a king who is liberating them. And so the battle is not fought by the, the church going down and saying, well, will you believe in Christ? And if not, we'll kill you, right? That was the mistake of the, the crusades, imposing the kingdom through force. And um, so the battle's not fought by killing the opposition, but by rescuing captives from a hostile kingdom. We're, we're, we're going into territory of dominated peoples and we're declaring to them that freedom is found in this new king. So we, we gather and we grow by, I'll say this, recapturing territory for Christ. 
recapturing territory for Christ. We're heralding a message of life to dead people. We're going in and we say there's freedom for the captive, there's peace for the rebel, there's rest for the weary, there's hope for the broken, there's a way for the lost. All of that is part of the declaration of freedom for a captive people. And so this happens as us, the people that already belong to the kingdom, go in as citizens and they further the reign of the king by taking the liberation message into the world. That's to take the light into the dark places, not just keep the light all collected together and hope people eventually happen by. So that's why Jesus prayed for the disciples that they would be in the world, but not of the world, right? And he prays for the disciples that, that, uh, that God would keep them from the power of the evil one. That would be to experience all of um, the devil's plans and snares in the world. So here's the idea. God isn't a bigger, stronger, meaner bully. He's not a, a heavier artillery king that's coming in and imposing a kingdom in that way. He's a kind king, a loving master and a faithful friend. And that's the, that's the declaration that the gospel is. You can come to freedom, but you don't impose that with a, with a kind of violence. And so that's sort of behind the idea when we're reminded by Paul that we don't, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, that there's a different kind of struggle that happens, and it happens in a spiritual way. And so um, I introduced to you last week the, the actual Great Commission, right? which all authority, right, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then there's the modern version of that, that we've sort of reframed our mission around what we like to do or what we are comfortable with, and I won't um, go through that today because that's not my point. But here is my point this morning, that the kingdom coming happens, and we see, we kind of observe three things happening here in the text. The word declares that the kingdom has arrived, or it's here, or it's nearby, it's accessible to you. And then there's signs that are accompanying, and they validate that word there. And there's an authority that shows that this is a different kind of king, a better kingdom. And then there's the effects of when that word is received, or that, that gospel that's heralded happens and we see that happen in three ways. There's freedom that happens to people that are oppressed. There's a union that happens where people are made one into that kingdom and one with uh, one another. There's a reconciliation, if you want to think about that way. And then joy. Like joy is a, a main component of what we see when the kingdom is increased and the word is accepted uh, wherever it goes. And so what you see now, what we're reading here in Acts uh, at this specific moment, Acts is full of firsts. And uh, that's because this is a, a new covenant being, uh, you know, enacted. It's empowered by a new age, which is the age of the Spirit. It's under grace. And so this is a unique moment in redemptive history. And so there's a milestone here. And um, so I want, to, I want to show you why that's true. And um, we have to do that by backing way up to figure out why is, why is the church, quote-unquote, recapturing territory? And who are they capturing it from, or how is it being captured, and why is it recaptured and not just conquered anew, okay? And so um, this is specifically seen in the signs that are accompanying uh, the going out and the heralding of the gospel. And so in Mark chapter 16, um, Jesus is predicting what will happen uh, in the kingdom and the increase of his word. And he says this, that these signs will accompany those who believe, and I think that's an, an unfortunate um, colon right there. It's not in the original text. I think it should be, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. Then maybe a punctuation. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. And he goes on to talk about 
handling snakes and drinking poison. I left that out intentionally just because I don't want to debate that this morning. But at the end of that, in verse 20, he says, And they went out, and they preached everywhere, and the Lord worked through them, confirming his word by the signs that accompanied it. So he says, These signs will accompany my word going out, and those who believe... um, Will, will be authenticated by these kinds of signs. And that's exactly what we observe happening in uh, the gospel go, going and arriving in Samaria. There's, there's these signs of, of demons being cast out, people being healed, and, um, and people uh, believing in the word that's declared to them. So freeing people from the influence of a, a demonic realm is the, the reality that we're observing in this text. It's demonstrating the arrival and the expansion of another kingdom. So demons being cast out, demonstrates the arrival and the encroachment or the increase of another more powerful king and kingdom, okay? So whenever that's happening in the text, it's, it's never, ha- you can read the whole Old Testament, you will never see a, a demon being cast out. It only happens under the ministry and arrival of Christ when he begins to say, look, the, king, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's near, it's at hand. And he begins to cast out demons. And so this accompanies now this, this new kingdom that is, it's, it's nearby and it's, and it's increasing, okay? So this is the, the paradigm, if you will, that we're working under. And so um, in uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, uh, Jesus has been casting out demons. And so he's, he's being uh, accused um, of using the power of Satan to cast out Satan. And uh, so he's going to expose the problem of that. But he says this, essentially equating the, the casting out of demons with the power of God. He says, if it is by the finger of God or the hand of God or the power of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's, he's, he's putting these two together. He's saying one equals two, right? So if, if A happens, B must be true. If I'm casting out devils by the kingdom or excuse me, by the power of God, then the kingdom is at hand. And that's exactly what was happening. He was casting out demons by the finger of God. And so um, he, he's giving this as the premier evidence, not just of the fact that there is another kingdom, but it's a more powerful kingdom, right? It's, uh, it, it has authority over realms where there was no authority before. And uh, so, so that is uh, unique and it's specific. And so I, I, I said, I think it was maybe two weeks ago now, um, the battle that takes place spiritually uh, is fought with, like, it says powers and legalities and principalities. Remember this idea. And so there, there's, that, that has a specific idea, a specific connotation. So when the kingdom advances and reclaims territory, it is opposed by another kingdom, one with its own armies, its own weapons, and its own powers. That would be the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is the authority over this kingdom, and he has minions in this kingdom of various rank and file. Those are the ones we know as demons. Those are just fallen angels. So I need to rewind all the way back to Genesis to give you the, the, court of, the, the legalities of the situation, the, the powers that are at play, and the rights that are being recaptured, okay? So just stick with me. I'll go slow enough that I think you can pick everything up, but it's not exhaustive. You with me? Okay. So God gave Adam and Eve dominion over creation. This is what he does in the garden. He says, be fruitful, multiply. He gives them authority over the, the animals. He gives them all the trees and the fruit to, to eat and to survive off of, right? And uh, there was minimal um, restrictions. There was only one restriction, right? And we know what that was. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were to steward and to keep the creation, which is a command that is reissued again in the Great Commission. 
when Jesus says, go and make disciples, that should hearken somewhere in the back of your mind, be fruitful and multiply, fill and subdue the earth. This is the, it's a reissuing of the same kind of command of dominion. Yet, when Eve believes the word of Satan over trusting in the word of God, this usurps an authority and it hands over something specific to Satan. So uh, what's known as the headship of Adam, right? So Adam is a representative. He's the, if you want to think of it this way, the leader of humankind at this point. And so he has headship. And so mankind effectively gives up their birthright, which is dominion and rule, by ceding that over to Satan. So it's the, the, the birthright is the position of inheritance. It's, uh, it's belonging as a, a son or a, a daughter. And they do this for a bite of fruit, right? They do this to, to try and get uh, independence. Just like Esau gave up his birthright. He, he kind of has a, an echo of this later on. Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew right? He, he gives up his, his right of the double blessing. So this exchange is the establishment of a new corrupted head, a new authority. And so the sneaky undertone that we miss here in Adam and Eve losing power is they do it by trying to gain power, by trying to gain independence, by trying to gain freedom. The exact inverse happens because of the deception of Satan. He says, you're being kept from this, and so by trusting in Satan's word over God's word, that's the usurping of God's authority. And so they've, they give over to something, uh, something over to Satan. And so Satan convinces Eve that enlightening and empowering themselves was to gain something and something to be deserved and desired. But what they're actually doing is handing Satan what he most, what he most wants, which is the position of God, which is, which is for humankind to trust in him, to honor him as an authoritative word over and above God. This is Satan's original flaw, his issue, was that he wanted to ascend to the place of God. You know this, Lucifer? Okay? So this is what's happening. It's playing out now in the realm of man. So because Adam, as the head of humankind, obeyed another word instead of God's, he's removed and he's separated from the kingdom and he's placed into another kingdom, the one that he has honored. That's the kingdom of now of Satan, of the world. And so they're cast out of the garden, a kingdom which has a prince and a claim on those who belong to this other kingdom, the kingdom of the world. So in Ephesians 2.2, it's described in this way. Um, he, he talks about the way that you once were. The, in the, in, before, when you were in the kingdom of Satan, here's what happened. So you, you, were, you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Emphasis there on um, belonging to the power of the world and the prince of the world and then being a son. That's a, that's a significant claim there, Right? Because inheritance and birthright is mainly at play here. So Satan's kingdom, his domain of control, if you will, his influence is what we call the world. It doesn't mean the globe that you stand on. Okay? It means the system. All those that trust in either the deception of self or the deception of serve yourself are serving the spirit of the world. Do you, do you see the picture here I'm trying to paint a little bit? Okay. So... This is his dominion of control, and we serve this system when we belong to him, and we're referred to as sons of disobedience or sons of Satan. This is a legal claim for the sons of disobedience receive their due inheritance, right? The, to, uh, the wages of sin and disobedience is, and yet for the sons of God, they receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. That's, that's God's inheritance for his children. Okay? So we receive that as a free gift. So it's either son of disobedience, son of the devil, or son of God, and receive his 
inheritance and his obedience. So when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he's offered, uh, among other things, the kingdoms of this world. That's one temptation of Christ. But Christ is an obedient son in this moment. And though Christ could have stood on his own merit as, as God, he doesn't. He trusts in the word of the Father. He, he's, his rebuttal always to what Satan tempted him with was, but it is written, right? This is what God's word says, and I trust this more than Satan. So in, in a replaying, if you will, of opportunity of what happened in the garden now happens again with Christ, but he's now the obedient and faithful son, which makes him now the rightful heir, okay? So Satan gained what he gained in the fall by Adam's sin is reclaimed or redeemed, what it was rightfully belonged to man, and it rightfully belongs to mankind again, and that's the significance of Jesus coming as the God-man. He came to redeem flesh and blood, humans. That's why it's important that we believe that God was fully God, or Jesus was fully God and fully man. He redeemed humankind and took back what was rightfully ours. He dies and pays the debt which he did not owe, and he's raised, vindicated, victorious as the new man. That's what. Um, uh, Romans, and what Paul calls the second Adam. So in the first Adam, all die. All have sin because he sinned. If he's our head, you're, you get that inheritance. But in Christ, all have life. So he's called the second Adam. And so he redeems what was lost. And we see this pictured in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. He's, he's the one, he's the lamb that was slain but victorious. And there's this scroll that appears in uh, if you remember, John is so sad because no one is worthy to open the scroll or read its contents, and yet the Lamb appears. And then there's a great shout in heaven because he's worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to receive this birthright, this title deed to what we were always um, intended to have. And so Christ is obedient, he honors God, and he receives back what uh, was lost. So demons, just like any army, just like any uh, authority structure have a power and a rank and authority so in mark chapter 3 jesus is casting out demons and the jews claim that he's doing this member by the authority of of, of beelzebub which is to literally say the prince of, of the demons or the prince of the, the flies so he was wielding his power he's casting out demons and they're accusing him of of using uh the authority of satan but jesus responds how can satan cast out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is, has risen up against himself and he's divided, he cannot stand. But he's coming to an end. So he's showing, he's showing the flaw in their logic. Like, first of all, why would Satan do this? But if he was doing that, it would, it would come to his own end. It would be his own demise were he, be, were he doing this by, you know, if I was acting on uh, Satan's power. And then in verse 27... He makes this important resolution. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. The strong man in this statement is the devil. That's Satan. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his goods. So remember I said that the demons being cast out shows that there's not just another kingdom, but a more powerful kingdom. And when Jesus begins to talk about what it is for Satan to protect what quote-unquote, is his at this moment, he calls him the strong man. And uh, in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11, he says another stronger man must show up and he must bind the devil. And so we are, uh, we're at a point where the devil is bound. Now, I want to qualify this statement, but I want you to see in Luke, uh, I don't have it up for you, but I'll just read it to you. In Luke chapter 11, verse 21, is parallel to this statement, which says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his palace, 
his goods are safe. But when a stronger, more, uh, a stronger man more than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor and his trusted uh, goods and divides, and he divides the spoils. So listen, um, the picture that Jesus is saying is trying to paint is this, that um, it is impossible to retrieve back anything from Satan unless he's first conquered, right? He has to be defeated in some sense to get back uh, what was rightfully belonged to us. And so Jesus indicates that we live in an era of victory over Satan because he's been bound and disarmed so that now his goods may be plundered. Jesus is not a pirate though, right? He's not, he's not a Robin Hood. He's not stealing from Satan what's rightfully his. He's regaining back what was always rightfully ours. And so uh, I think it's cool that Jesus knows how to be a strong man and be a better strong man, but that's not the picture he's trying to paint necessarily. Satan's house is impossible to penetrate unless the strong man is bound first. Since Satan holds the power and rights um, where he dwells in the kingdom, and he's in, enjoyed this freedom relatively unthreatened until Jesus comes, and he conquers uh, a specific power of Satan over uh, his dominion, and we, he can, uh, we can begin to plunder his goods. So Jesus does say, that Satan has to be bound if his goods are, are being plundered. Okay, so there's an, I'm going to pose an if-then statement. So if Jesus says it's impossible to take anything from Satan unless he's first been bound, but it's impossible to get into the strong man's house unless he's been bound. Well, um, in Revelation chapter 20, uh, we read this, and this is real late in chapter 20, which makes some of you uncomfortable, real late in Revelation. But this is uh, what we see as a picture. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and he's holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. Okay? Then in verse 3 it says, He threw him into the pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I don't care what your eschatological scheme is at the moment. That means I don't care what you believe about the end. If Jesus' words are to be trusted, I, I suggest they're to be trusted. The strong man's goods cannot be plundered unless he is first bound. This is Jesus' statement. And his goods being plundered looks like people being rescued from the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus definitively has a victory over Satan, but he's not totally bound. We see that there is opposition. That's why I've highlighted the specific reason why he's been bound, or in what way is Satan restricted. He's restricted that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And that nations becomes a really important idea. And uh, so we need to get a little more background. So we're almost there. But implication here is that any longer means he's already doing that. That's already what's taking place, that the nations are being deceived. But now he's, he's been bound, at least by chapter 20 of Revelation. So binding... The messengers does not bind the message in this case. That's what the picture, I think, is being drawn here. So Satan can do a lot of things. He's, he's doing things physically to the church. He's opposing the, the, the encroaching kingdom on his quote-unquote kingdom, but he's unable to keep the nations from receiving the good news. So it can be declared, okay? So, so in that specific way, he cannot keep that news from coming forth. So that's true. Jesus uh, was died, buried, risen, and uh, that, that declares a specific thing, and now he's ascended. There's a, there's a victory that's won, and declaring that victory 
is what Satan is now prevented from doing so that that news can go to the nations. That's, I think, the picture that you need to see here. So that binding there is keeping Satan from, from uh, perpetuating an existing condition where the nations were deceived and they belonged to him as inheritance. So this is the confirmation that Jesus' statement is true. The Great Commission explicitly instructs the disciples to take the gospel to the nations, those who were lost and disinherited, that didn't know anything of the promises. In addition, demons are being cast out. Souls are being added to God's kingdom. So that sounds a lot like plundering the devil's goods, if you ask me. We can debate that later, but I needed you to see that, okay? So in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, Jesus also says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this in reference to the kind of death that he would die. When he's lifted up on the cross, that he would draw all people, meaning all kinds of people. Those are the, the nations that are far away. The same promise that uh, Peter declares at Pentecost. This promise is for you and for your children and all those who are far off. That doesn't mean like literal geographical location. He's referring to a nation which has been disinherited or the nations. So real quick, I said we're almost there and we are. So in Genesis 6, there's the incident of the fallen angels taking for themselves wives and producing what's called the Nephilim. This is this hybrid offspring. Those are the angels which are judged. They're kept in gloomy darkness. This is referred to in Jude. But you need to see there was a rebellion of the fallen angels in Genesis 6, which then creates this rebellious society. And then in Genesis 11, a more familiar picture to you is the Tower of Babel, where man decides he's going to ascend to the heights and take uh, his place next to God, or he wants to be God again, right? And so in... um, Genesis 11, man beds the tower to ascend to God and create a name for himself. But as a result, they're judged, and what happens? The nations are divided, and languages are divided. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses is, is, is reminding the nation of Israel what's happened in their past, he references this judgment. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, he says, When the Most High, that's Yahweh, when God gave to the nations, okay, when he divided it up at Babel, remember, he, he broke them up, he, he changed their languages, he confused their languages, and he divides them up, it says, and their inheritance. There's the reference to the inheritance, the birthright. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples, according to the number of, very importantly, the sons of God. That is, um, that's the angels and the fallen angels. So the, Lord, the Lord's portion is his people, though. His allotted inheritance is, 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 uh, is Jacob. So what is, let me, let me say this a different way. What he's done at Babel was he confused the language, he divided the nations, put up borders, and he turned them over, if you will, to worship the host of heaven, which is said in, a, in another psalm. Which means they, they basically worshiped the trees, they worshiped the stars, they worshiped stuff, right? They worshiped creation and not the creator. And God did this as a judgment on them. And so he's, he's disinherited them from knowing him. But he kept for himself a people, that's Israel, right? So, that's, that's what happened at Babel. And so the world now is described as one that's lying in the power of the evil one, describing the one that's broken apart into nations. They're separated, they're cast out all over, and they're left to follow whatever their imagination creates. So this was a judgment on the rebellion on the nations. We get a sense of this borders and, and territories in Ezekiel chapter 28. You can scribble that down. There's the prince of, uh, the prince of Tyre who is... Uh, the, the king, the man that claimed to be God. He said he was a God. 
And then there's the king of Tyre, who's referred to as the demonic power behind the prince of Tyre. And that's referred to as like not just a a king and a person, but also then a territory, if you will, a a place. This happens again in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel's praying. He asks for uh, an answer from the Lord. And then it says, 21 days later, the angel appears. And he says, look, I, I came on day one, but I was resisted by the prince of Persia, who was a demonic force, and I would have come, but I was delayed for 21 days while I made, made a battle with this demonic force. So there's territories at play here. Now, lest that feel too weird for you, it's not up to you to decide what happened. That's what happened, okay? Now, as the gospel goes out, Samaria is specifically mentioned because it represents an area which had compromised worship, okay? So much like we talked about how um, the Hellenistic Jews were sort of maybe... Um, looked down upon a little bit because they didn't live in Jerusalem. They weren't like the um, proper Jews. Well, now you have people that were even like half-breed Jews. Like that's what the Samaritans were called because they weren't full-blooded. So real quick, the the background on Samaria is this. Um, Solomon, who is David's son, he he takes over as king. And um, though he was very wise, he did not honor God in very much of what he did, right? He took a lot of wives and concubines. He made political alliances. He compromised and allowed worship of other deities. And as a judgment for that, when his son took the throne, Rehoboam, right? When his son took the throne, the, the nation is divided into northern and southern Israel. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Israel, which was Judea, right? And Judah, which... Uh, so the northern kingdom is where... Um, uh, Samaria is, and uh, the southern kingdom is where uh, Judah is and Benjamin, and uh, you don't need to know all that information, but here's what happened. So uh, the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria in 722 BC, and they're taken captive. And what happens is, in Assyria, all of their uh, people are uh, mixed culturally, they're mixed uh, into other religions, and so when they return eventually back to Israel proper, they're they're a compromised people. They're worshiping all these other gods. In, um, in the book of Nehemiah uh, is about the, the southern kingdom returning and the faithful Jews coming back, and they want, to rebuild, they want to rebuild the temple. They want to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritans, or Samaria, want, want to help rebuild the temple. They offer to help, and they're rebuffed. They're told no. They're told go kick rocks, and that sounds like a bad thing to do, but it was the right thing to do because they represented a compromised people. So this... Um, started a, a great divide religiously and culturally, right? Samaritans represented a compromised people, and the, the uh, people in Jerusalem and the temple represented the people that were the faithful Jews. And so what happened was eventually, um, as a way of uh, responding to this, uh, Samaritans, um, they developed their own place of worship. They built their own temple. They had their own mountain. That's Mount Gerizim. They uh, made their own scriptures. They had a different... Uh, law and, uh, that they followed, and uh, they had their own priesthood, and uh, so they basically had their own, their own version, a corrupt version of worshiping Yahweh. It's said uh, in 2 Kings that they feared the Lord, but they also worshiped the gods of the nations from which they had been mixed, okay? And so this is the picture of the Samaritans. So now, when you, when you think about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria, when they go there, and they have this dialogue about worship, and, and the woman's like, hey, you know, our fathers say we worship on this mountain. Your fathers say we worship, you know, like who really knows? But when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us the right way to worship. And remember Jesus' response is, I am he. 
I, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm, the one you're talking to is, is the one you're talking to. But um, so, so here's, what, here's what all of this is leading up to, right? He says, at that moment, there will not be worship on your mountain or worship on our mountain. It will be, God will be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And this is inaugurated then at Pentecost. By the spirit, the, the reunification project begins to take place. The recapturing begins to take place. Why? Because there's no divisions now of a disinherited people. There's, there's no uh, divisions uh, between our location and your location. There's no centralization of the temple anymore because God's presence is no longer captured in the temple because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And there's no longer a competing priesthood or a king, because we're all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's no longer a wrong kind of person, somebody that's not a, a pure child of Abraham, right? Because all that are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The Holy Spirit makes us all one in Christ, and so he's the one that regenerates hearts to know the Lord. By the Spirit's empowerment and the good news of Jesus' victory, witnessing, we all get to take part thou in the reversal of what happened at Genesis 10 at Babel, where the nations are broken apart, and they're separated, and they're given over. But now in Christ, through the Spirit, they're all being gathered back in. There's no separation anymore, but they're being gathered in, really importantly, to a unified person. That's all under Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of the same spirit. So the unity that happens in the spirit is key to this reversal process. So we're all worshiping in one spirit and being made into one people. So the result of this declaration of what's happening to specifically a place that had been rejected they were on the outside. They didn't really have, they had to create their own version of worship, a corrupt version of worship. The result of Philip coming down and saying, look, you too are included now. You can be sons and daughters of God, right, is a source of joy. It results in all those who had, um, first of all, the demons are leading. People are being healed. And it's a source of joy. In John chapter 10, the first time Jesus sends out the disciples as he commissioned them to go out, right? He says, I've given you authority to cast out um, evil spirits and to tread on snakes and scorpions. They come back, they're all happy. You, you wouldn't believe what happened. Where even the demons are subject to us in your name. And they, they're super excited. They're all jacked up. And then Jesus says, no, that's, not, that's not your reason to be happy. You shouldn't be joyful about that. What you should be joyful about is that your name is recorded in the book of life that you're recorded in heaven as one that belongs to God, as a son. Now, that's not to be sexist, because the son is the one that receives the inheritance. He's the one that has the blessing. So even if you're a daughter, you're a son, okay? So that's important. So there's much joy in this city, and I want you finally at the end here to connect these last two pieces, which is this. If you sort of examine and just kind of take the, the, the whole meta-narrative of what Jesus is doing when he interacts with demons— and the, the descriptions of what demonic spirits do to people. So there's like physical ailments that we see. Sometimes it's people that are crippled. Sometimes they, they're blind. Sometimes they're mute. Sometimes, you know, there, there's all kinds of conditions that people might be in. But there's also then like spiritual or, or emotional afflictions that we would think of as more like psychological. So you have people that are mute or they're blind or they're angry or they experience self-harm or they're obsessed with darkness and death. These are all conditions that are caused by Demons who are afflicting or oppressing people. And Jesus' words when he's casting them out is not always leave, but you are loosed. You're set free. I'm setting, I'm loosing you from the, the, the binding of this demon. It makes sense then if demons can afflict not just our physical being, that they also 
are opposing us spiritually and emotionally, which makes sense then that the result of all of this is not just people that belong to God, but a people that are joyful in belonging to God. The connection of conquering joy is connected to the freedom. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what 1 John 3.8 says. He's destroying all of the strongholds that the devil has put in place. So our power against this, our only uh, way to advance forward is God's word. That's the truth that we're supposed to, that's the thing that they go about as they're dispersed out into the nations to go and declare. This is called the sword of the spirit, the inspired word of God. It divides spiritual powers and ideas and influences from worldly ones, from the flesh. And we conquer these because um, it's, it's uh, given divine power. We crush strongholds by taking the gospel and living the gospel wherever we go. But we must go. What's taking that into uh, dark places? So when you combine, listen, Ephesians 6, 2 Corinthians 10, which Ephesians 6 is we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, and 2 Corinthians 10 is we take every stronghold and every thought captive in Christ. So this is the picture you get. We're not wrestling using physical force or warfare of humanity. Our fight isn't in the realm of the flesh, nor are our enemies conquered there. Rather, the war is waged in the spiritual realm against spiritual foes, using spiritual weapons. But the truth, the word of God, is divinely powered to tear down every kind of authority, every kind of opposition, any kind of power. Every stronghold must fall, and it will fall. It's promised to fall because the gates of hell cannot withstand the advance of the word. So take up all the means that God has given you. Prepare yourself for the fight by readying yourself with the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, always being ready with the gospel to fight. But the only offensive weapon you're given, the only weapon you have, is the sword of the Spirit. That's the truth. That's the the word of Christ, taking it out wherever you go. I think we have a tendency to, to compromise on that one thing that we're given, because I, I, think, I think this is the mentality we get. If I take a Nerf gun instead of a sword, people will feel more comfortable with what I'm bringing. Right? They're not going to feel like I'm, 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 out to, I'm out to get them. But you, you, if you compromise on the one weapon of truth that you have, the one means of offense that you're given, you've compromised the whole game. That's why it's so essential that you don't compromise on the word of God. It's the one thing that can promise victory. In the military, um, they give you this little saying <laughs> when they give you your weapon. It says, this is my rifle, right? There's a lot of other rifles that are just like it, but this is my rifle. Without my rifle, or without me, my rifle is nothing. Without my rifle, I'm nothing, okay? You could apply that same saying to the word of God, right? The Bible that you're holding Right? There's a lot of other Bibles like it, but that Bible's yours. That's your word of truth. And unless you're wielding it, you're nothing. You have nothing to advance in the power of your own doing. And this is another reason why we get messed up. Because we want to walk in victory, and so we look for other kinds of victories to affirm for us that we're doing the right thing and that we're really in the battle. You know, the other thing that they do when you join the military, they send you basic training. They make sure you know how to shine your shoes real well, right? And they make sure that you can, you know, make your bed and tuck your corners so that that thing is nice and clean, right? But the war is not won in shiny shoes and well-made beds, is it? 
No. It's, it's the same thing here. We, we get obsessed in the things that are good and right, but part of what they're doing in basic training is not, trying, is not so much trying to tell you that that's how you win the war, but it's getting you to be a faithful soldier, to obey orders uncompromisingly, right? And that's the same kind of mentality we need to take with God. The battle plan for the Great Commission is to walk in faith with God's word. You don't have to add anything to it. You don't have to compromise on it to make it better. The commander's intent is, uh, is a, a very condensed version of an entire battle plan. If they gave every soldier the battle plan and said, hey, fight this the best way you think you could do it, then everybody would be fighting their own battle. And the, the, the army is not a, a coalition of individual forces fighting on their own. It is one unit fighting as one whole, and that's the church. You're not an individual mercenary for Christ. You are part of the collective whole. And so the commander's intent is the reduced, condensed summary a statement of the intended purpose or the outcome of the mission. So the commander's intent in this case is this, go. Go with God's truth, be a faithful soldier wherever it is that he calls you to advance the kingdom. You're, you're not there to impose God's rule by force. You're there to declare a better king, a freedom from captivity, right? Hope for the hopeless. So this is the means that we move forward. We wage war through the word, holding fast to the word, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. I want to encourage you with this last scripture in Romans chapter 16. He says this, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is what he, he says, that the God of peace that the means that he's doing, that the war is advancing, it's still, the conflict's still happening, but he's not doing it through this, um, this crushing rule. He's doing it through the declaration of peace. And that all those who were once serving a kingdom, the kingdom of the world, are serving another kingdom now. And they're the ones that, are, that, that used to be enslaved to this cruel tyrant who trusted in a deceived word, who would give their lives and their power and their means over to Satan, thinking to be serving themselves. But when we serve Christ, we serve the God of peace. And he's crushing the rule of Satan. And it says that because of, because of the way that he won the victory, he's exposing the devil to open ridicule and shame. Because we, we go, we won by death. We, we won by the cross. We won by losing. So the only means the devil had to, 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 to steal hope and to crush life was to impose hopelessness on people and Jesus wins the victory through that vehicle and so that whenever we find new life through that vehicle it exposes all of the devil's power as powerlessness all of the world's wisdom as foolishness right the weakness of God or excuse me the weakness of yeah I think that the weakness of the cross it, it seems shameful and, and, and uh, the humility of it is, is rejected by the world because they think it's stupid but it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God to use that means to advance the kingdom. So I, that's my encouragement for you this morning. I know that was a lot, so I wanted you to see the picture of this. The, the gospel's going to these disinherited nations, and they're being reunified, and it's being shown, it's being authenticated, signified that this new kingdom is, has expulsive power, and demons are crying out with voices. They're leaving, and people are being healed, and that shows 
that the kingdom has come, that the finger of God is casting out, it's moving, and it's reuniting a people into Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray.